Okay, good morning, everyone. Okay. Okay, good morning, good morning, good morning. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy upon us sinners. Amen. Again we pray. Let your merciful ears, O Lord, be open to the prayers of your humble servants, and that they may obtain their petitions, make them to ask such things as shall please you. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Okay, the verse of the week from Acts chapter 14. Let's speak this together. We must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. Okay. At the risk of being smitten on the spot here for altering the words of Scripture, let me restructure this sentence for you so you have just a little bit of a better idea of what is going on. So let's do this here. We're going to cut this part off. We're going to add this. It is necessary, or you could even say, it is that we must enter the kingdom of God. Boop, 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 boop. And then back up to here through many tribulations. Okay? So think about it this way it is necessary, or it is that through many tribulations, or excuse me, it is necessary that, or it is that, we must enter the kingdom of God through many tribulations. Uh, the reason that I encourage you to maybe reword it just slightly is twofold. One, this is just a translation, and um, sometimes translations are really difficult to do. C taking the text from one language into another, you're always going to lose something, so you try your best not to lose too much, and sometimes how you arrange the wording of the sentence can be a little bit strange for that reason. But here's the second reason. Not that I think you do, but I want to avoid you thinking that the way you enter the kingdom of God is through sufferings, so that you say, well, how am I going to get to the kingdom of God? Oh, I have to suffer. Let's go find some good ways for me to suffer so that I can say, Lord, look, I suffered. Now you can let me into the kingdom of heaven because that's not... Don't seek suffering. Trust me, suffering will find you well enough. You don't need to hunt it down. Okay? So the point of this is not to say, hey, listen, if you want to be a good Christian, then you better go find some areas of your life to suffer in. The point is to say, the way into the kingdom of God is beset by suffering. So that to get to the kingdom of God, you pass through suffering. In other words, the way of life is the more difficult of the two ways. 
The way of death is an easy way to trod, and as the church fathers say, the road, or hell itself can never be made attractive, so the road to hell is made attractive. So that you, like a frog on the pot, walk this really comfortable, beautiful way until you walk through the door, and then all of a sudden you can't turn back, and you thought you were doing something really great and having such a great time until you're not, and you can't do anything about it. Meanwhile, the other road is narrow, it's overgrown, it's beset by, like I said two weeks ago in my sermon, ravenous predators. You're hunted as you walk the way. This is, we, we were putting up corn yesterday with the Voltmer clan, and one of, one of the Voltmers said that they were driving home, and they saw a deer hop across the road, and a mountain lion hopped across right after the deer. That's you! You're the deer! And guess what? There's a whole lot of mountain lions out there, folks, and they're all coming for you. And that's what it's like walking the way of life. It's not a comfortable way, but the end is much better. So, yes, there will be many trials and tribulations, and there will be a lot of pain and suffering. Nobody said that being a Christian was going to be an easy thing. It's a whole lot harder to be a Christian than it is not to be. And you're really not going to live your best life here. Uh, so then here's the question, why? Why is it that the way of life is beset this way? Wouldn't you think that if the end of this way was so glorious that the way itself would be as well? So why is it so difficult? Okay, to keep your attention. To, to a degree, you know, uh, the Lord chastens him who he loves. So when you're disciplined a long way, discipline is never a comfortable thing. Uh, anyone who's grown up with parents that may, uh, made you get switches or a belt uh, understands that discipline is not always a comfortable thing. But it is a necessary thing, and the end goal of discipline is uh, in love to make people who hold to values. So that is true to a degree. There's something deeper than that, though. Original sin. Okay, sin. And original sin, yes. So this is the thing. You're in a sinful world, and what does the sinful world think about Jesus? He doesn't exist. Oh, no, he does. Well, the sinful world doesn't. Oh, no, they do. Okay. This is, see, the, okay. Here is, here is the voice of the atheist. Are you ready? The atheist says, I don't believe that there is a God, and I also hate him. <laughs> Do you see that? You can't hate something that you don't believe exists. And that really is the answer. What does the world think of Jesus? Well, it hates him. How much so does the world hate Jesus? Well, I mean, they killed him. That's a lot of hate. Uh, and to be a disciple of Jesus, to be baptized into Christ, means that you go where Christ goes. For better, mostly better, but also for worse, what happens to Jesus happens to you. That's a glorious thing. I mean, that's your funeral sermon right there. What happens to Jesus happens to you. Jesus rose from the dead, which means that you will rise from the dead. Amen. There's your funeral sermon. Okay? But it also means that the world hated Jesus, so the world will hate you. The world persecuted Jesus, so the world will persecute you. And um, the devil and his horde in their rage 
foaming and frothing at the mouth, these predators along the way will seek to pick you off. Um, there's an icon of the church called the, uh, the icon of divine ascent, I think it's called, and it's a ladder, and it's the depiction of the Christian journey, and you have all these Christians that are climbing up the ladder, and all around there are these little black devils with wings that are grabbing Christians and throwing them off the ladder, down to the ground. That's the Christian life, striving toward holiness, struggling against sin, all with the understanding that you have strength to do so in Christ and in the faith that he has given you and in the hope that when you die, you don't really die. Because remember, if you die before you die, you don't die when you die. Baptism is death. You've already died once. You won't die again. Okay? So that's all wrapped up in this passage from Acts. Let's speak this again. We must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. Yes, yes, okay. Uh, what does God's word say to workers? Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but like slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Very good. Uh, don't be put off by this talk about slaves and masters. It does still apply to you. Just replace every instance of slave with employee, and every instance of master with employer. So um, anybody who is employed, obey your employees with respect and fear. And again, I, I can't say this enough times, don't, don't look at fear and think it means that you have to be afraid. Fear doesn't mean afraid, it means reverence and awe. You're, you don't go into the sanctuary with, uh, with fear in that you walk in there going, oh, I hope God doesn't strike me down today. He's so big and I'm so small. You go in there with fear in that you understand that he is there and that's his holy space and you, you are reverent. So fear, fear doesn't mean you're afraid of your employer. It means that you, you give them uh, the reverence that they deserve. In this case, uh, it means you understand, think about the fourth commandment. You understand where you are on the totem pole, so to speak. You understand that they are placed in authority over you, so you give them their respect. You don't talk to them in a way that doesn't befit the position they hold or the position you hold. You're polite, you're kind, you put the best construction on everything, okay? And you do it with sincerity of heart. It's so that, and that's contrary to the idea, you know, like, well, go apologize to your sister. I'm sorry. Right? You're not really sorry. It's not about lip service, it's about sincerity of heart. Do it wholeheartedly. Don't put on a face. Be this way. Uh, just as you would obey Christ. Just like with the fourth commandment, and you know, just like in a Christian marriage, you're not doing one thing or feeling one thing or saying one thing to another person um, a certain way because that person deserves it. I'm sure you have or have had some bosses that are real pieces of work. Just like sometimes your wife or your husband can, can be a real piece of work. 
Just like your parents could be real pieces of work, and sometimes your kids are real pieces of work. Okay? It, it, and that's sort of the point of the wording here, just as you would obey Christ, because you're not obeying them or doing what they want or in, uh, interacting with them for the sake of themselves, uh, for the sake of who they are as an individual. You're doing it for the sake of Christ. So uh, I think it was perhaps Dietrich Bonhoeffer who said, in our every interaction, let us remember that the person, person with whom we interact is another one who was redeemed by Christ. And if you think about every person as one who was paid for and redeemed by Christ, it informs your interaction. That you interact a certain way for Christ's sake, not for the sake of the individual. You treat an individual the way Christ treats that individual, which is always with love, grace, kindness, and mercy. Okay? And not only to win their favor, I love this, you know when the Catechism says not only, like baptism is not only, not just plain water, but it is also water. It's just not just water. Well, not only to win their favor, so it's okay to behave so that they see how good of a worker you are. Look at Joseph. Joseph behaved very well and was so good at his job that he was promoted the head of all the slaves of the household. He was the head of that household. The only person who had, or the only people who had more authority than he did were Potiphar and his wife. It's okay to do a good job and have people see that you do a good job and give you a promotion or whatever or give you a compliment because you've done good work. That's fine. But, like slaves of Christ, you also do it uh, because it's the will of God and you do it because you follow Jesus and you do what Jesus does and say what Jesus says. So you behave like Christ. So you do that for that reason. You interact with them as children of God. And then you have the added earthly advantage of being able to say, well, this is how I would behave, but it's okay for them to see me behaving this way, and it's okay for me in all of the humility of Christ also to accept a promotion or a raise or whatever. Okay? Questions? Very good. Children, you may, you may depart. Yes. Yes. Uh -huh. I know that prayers are helping with whatever little bit of good they see each day, you know? Uh -huh. So what do you do when it comes to the point that it goes south and they start blaming God? That's a good question. Um, there are a few avenues we could take on this. Here's the first one. This is something that we've talked about before um, as it pertains to prayer. When you pray, you don't pray with only the one specific thing in mind and then blame God when that one very specific thing does not take place. Uh, the example, the comedic example, 
being, I want a Lamborghini, I want a Lamborghini, and then I don't get a raise, and all I can afford is my Honda Civic. Well, doggone it, God didn't answer my prayers. I really, I prayed hard for that Lamborghini. Didn't he listen to me? And then, what? well, okay, but, but God has promised to give you, firstly, all things that are good and right, and is, is a Lamborghini good and right? And secondly, you know as a Christian that the Lord will always give you that for which you pray that is good and right, or something better. So when you don't pray for something that's good or right, he'll give you something better. And when you do pray for something that's good, and you, and you are praying for that, but there is also something better, he'll give you the thing that's better. The problem is, how do you view what happens? Because it's... Right, well, that's where I'm going. Yeah, well, it's a hard thing. It's a hard pill to swallow. This is the other avenue. There's always going to be tribulations. Life is full of them. You can't pray to the Lord, Lord, may I never experience another difficulty, hardship, or tribulation. May I never experience sadness the rest of the time that I live and expect that the Lord's going to say, oh, you know what? I'm moved by your prayers. You've just, got grand You've just merited eternal happiness. It's just not going to happen. I mean, it is to a degree, right? Because where is the place where the Lord gives you true joy? Here. I mean, you say, Lord, I'm really hurting. What do I do? And he says, well, come on over. I've got this guy I put in charge of you who can speak my word to you. And uh, my son is going to be there and he'll give you a nice lunch. And he'll pick you up and dust you off and give you some strength. And if you're really troubled by things, you just tell me everything that's on your heart and, uh, and I'll give you my word of absolution and I'll take it on, all on me. You give me your problems and then your problems don't exist anymore in a sense. So to a degree, you have respite and relief here that the Lord gives you, but he can't take away all of your sufferings. The world is a sinful place. You're redeemed Yes, but there are still earthly consequences and sin manifests itself in creation, in the fallen creation, in many ways. Tragedy is one. Loss is one. Is it okay to cry at a funeral? As a, Christ, as a Christian, is it okay to cry at a funeral? Absolutely it is okay. And if anybody is trying to hold it in, you might even hear me say, it's okay to cry. You're not robots for Pete's sake. You have emotions. Why do you have emotions? Because the Lord has emotions. Because you're made in the image and likeness of God, which means even in your sadness, you reflect the image of God. Christ mourns, and it's not because of his human nature that he does so at the death of his friend Lazarus. So it's, it's okay to be sad. It's okay to grieve, to mourn, to feel that loss. What isn't okay is to grieve and mourn and feel that loss as if there's nothing after it. So to get back to prayer then, the, the not so comedic example I use a lot is this. You, you have a dear friend who is diagnosed with terminal cancer and you pray for their healing and then they die. Did the Lord hear your prayers and answer them? Yes, he did. The Lord granted a different kind of healing than what you thought. But he still heard and answered your prayers. 
And even if you say, please give them a healing of body, you know, you, like those old stories about the genie who comes to give you a wish, but you have to be really specific about your wish. You're drafting up and filling in every single loophole. Even if you compose a prayer like that, some 25-page legal document binding prayer with no loopholes, please heal their body and mind, let them rise up out of that bed and be absolutely normal. It's a pious thing for you to pray for. And then if they die, you can still say, blessed be the name of the Lord. He has heard my prayer and he has answered. He has given something better than what I prayed for. How do you handle, how do you handle misfortune? Well, I mean, Bear with me for one second because I don't know the number. Oh. Okay, 756 if you have your hymnal. By the way, today's a hymn Sunday, so you should probably have your hymnal anyway for the end when we sing the hymn. <laughs> Just my advertisement. 756. Hey, look at that. It's a hymn by Paul Gerhard. He experienced a lot of suffering. He lost most of his family and his congregation and was kicked out of church and moved from church to church to church to church to church because he stood up for what was true. It's really easy to blame God. Hey, and listen, the prophets did blame God. Moses blamed God. Lord, why have you put me in charge of these stubborn, stiff-necked people? Kill me now because I'm tired of dealing with them. The prophets blamed God too. Lord, it is better for me to die. Jonah said that. It's better for me to die than to preach to the Ninevites. So, uh, I mean, it's fine if you want to get angry with God. You actually have that right, by the way. Christians think it's not okay to be it's not okay for you to be angry with God, but you're wrong. It is okay. It is okay. He's your father. You can take your anger to him just like you can take everything else to him. You can ask him why he let something happen. He's probably not going to send a lightning bolt down with a little scroll that you can read and say, oh, okay, well, now I understand 100%. Who can discern the ways of the Lord? So, and then this is the final avenue, by the way, that I would take with this. Uh, who can discern the way of the Lord? Nobody can. How can, you, how can you plumb the depths of the unknowns of why anything happens? If you try to do that, of course you're going to turn your back on God because you have absolutely... No answer. You have absolutely no capacity to be able to dwell on the unknowns of why something happened, other than to say, this is a wicked world, and there is wickedness in it, and wickedness is manifested in all, all ways, including sudden tragedies and losses. But you do know something, and that is that the Lord will never forsake you. The Lord will never abandon you. Even things that are intended for evil, the Lord will always work for good. The Lord will always love you and care for you. And even in death, the Lord still preserves his saints. Christians uh, are better suited to looking at what is known and clinging to those and, and the promises and the words that God has made clear than trying to plumb the depths of the unknown and discern why did this happen. I don't know. It's okay to say I don't know. I, I don't know. 
You know, this is the thing that pastors get a lot when you're at a graveside or a bedside or in the hospital. Why did this happen, pastor? I thought God loved me. I don't know, I, and I'll never be able to answer that for you. My, and my job isn't to answer that, actually. My job is to point you to Christ and to give you his comfort. And I can't tell you why something happened, but I can tell you where God is in the midst of that. I can tell you that the Lord, when he sent his son to die for you, never intended to take away all suffering from a sinful creation. He intended that every ounce, every square millimeter of suffering in this creation was instead filled with his presence so that no matter where you are in life, full of suffering, pain, and hurt, the Lord is 100% there with you, joined to you in your suffering, even unto death. Which I think is a greater comfort knowing that than it is trying to figure out why something happened. So let's look at this quickly. I'll get to you in a second, Bruce. Let's look at this. Why should cross and trial grieve me? Christ is near with his cheer. Never will he leave me. Who can rob me of the heaven that God's son for me won when his life was given? I mean, take they our fame, uh, good child and wife, though these all be gone, the kingdom still ours remaineth. Okay? You can lose everything, but the kingdom is still yours. When life's troubles rise to meet me, though their weight may be great, they will not defeat me. God, my loving Savior, sends them. That's sometimes a hard pill to swallow, too. That misfortunes happen at the will of God. He who knows all my woes knows how best to end them. God gives me days of gladness, and I will trust him still when he sends me sadness. God is good, his love attends me. Day by day, come what may, guides me and defends me. And I'll skip to the fifth stanza because I love it so much. Now in Christ, death cannot slay me, though it might day and night trouble and dismay me. Christ has made my death a portal from the strife of this life to his joy immortal. You will have suffering, but the Lord is always in the middle of it with you. To sever yourself from the Lord in suffering is the worst thing that you can do. To turn your back on the Lord is the worst thing you can do because he certainly hasn't turned his back to you. Suffering is no indication of whether or not the Lord is with you. It is only an indication that this is a fallen creation and that there is something much better to come. Bruce. <laughs> His way may be different, and when we look back and this difficulty is solved, it's usually a lot better way than the way we answer. Yeah, this is why a Christian can say, Blessed be the name of the Lord, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Because no matter what happens, the will of God is always good. Uh, that also reminds me, the collect. By the way, Hymn 756 is why it is so important that Christians actually know their hymnody. It's also why I say if you want to know what a denomination really believes, don't listen to the pastor and don't open up pamphlets or books in the church. Look at the hymnal. So the hymnal will tell you what they believe more than anything else that you could see or hear in that place. 
Um, this is why you have to know your hymns. Even if you never sing them, you have to know them. Because they will preach to you things like this. Why should cross and trial grieve me? You have to know that. Because this, this is the faith. This is the confidence. There's nothing that you can experience in this day, in this life, in this age, that Christians before you have not already experienced and or written about. I mean, the Psalms are a great place to start. If you have trouble with anything in your life, you're certain that you're going to find an answer to it in the Psalms. And at the very least, you're going to find that the Psalms will change your perspective on things. So look at the collect for today. Let your merciful ears, O Lord, be open to the prayers of your humble servants. And in order that they may obtain their petitions, make them to ask such things as shall please you. Show them what things are good and right for them to ask, and then direct them to ask for the things that are good and right. This is a, a simple way of saying what I say, or rather, my way is a slightly roundabout way of saying what this says, that the Lord, when he says, I will give you all things that you ask in my name, has already shown you all the things that are good and right that he will already give you in his name. That's why the collects refer to God by different names. That's why if I am at your hospital bed because you've been wounded or because you've grown ill, I will say, O oh Lord, the great physician of body and soul. Why? Because his name confesses a reality and tells you all the things you can pray for according to his name. The great physician of body and soul. Oh, okay, so that means that, that he'll it's okay for me to pray for healing. Okay, now I know the great physician of body and soul. Listen to those colics. Listen to those prayers. Uh, all of those prayers will show you, I mean, you already almost know what you're going to be praying for just by seeing what the name is. And there's a whole list of names that God has given himself and then revealed to you that in his name you might know the things that are good for you to pray for. And guess what? If you decide not even to pay attention to any of the names of God and you still don't know what you're supposed to pray for or what's good, he's got you covered there too. Because all you have to pray is, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. If you can't think of what to pray for, pray the Lord's Prayer. Everything you could possibly think to ask of or pray for is already included in the Lord's Prayer. This is the problem with folks that say, Well, you have to pray from the heart. The Lord doesn't care, or the, Lord doesn't the prayer doesn't matter unless it's from the heart. So you can't even pray the Lord's Prayer because those are words that are written down. Well, fooey on that. The Lord gave you those words. The disciples didn't know how to pray. They said, hey, how are we supposed to pray? And he said, when you pray, pray like this. Use these words. Because everything you could possibly think to pray for is right there. Do you mean those words when you pray them? Because if you do, newsflash, they're from the heart. Uh, so you've got all your bases covered here. The Lord's hedging your bets for you. Did you have something, no, Bill? Uh, okay. Okay. All right, any, is that, does that sort of answer your question? Sometimes I get concerned that my tangents don't actually answer the question. <laughs> um, okay, 
The hymn for this week is, O God, O Lord of heaven and earth. This you sang last week, uh, but I was gone, so we couldn't do it for that Sunday, the, the study of it. So we'll do it today, and then this will be the rest of the month then uh, on this hymn. It's uh, an interesting tune and an interesting text. This is just a really, really good hymn, and I really hope that over the course of this month you, you grow to love it as I do. Uh, it's written by a fellow named Martin Franzman. Is that name familiar to anyone here? Martin Franzman? Yeah. Okay. There are, there are certain of our number that does not include me who would remember certain names and events because they are more contemporary uh, to them <laughs> than they are to me which is my polite way of saying there are folks that are older than I am who would remember things that happened before I was born. <laughs> See, look how polite I am. I love you all so much. Um, I'm very tactful. Uh, okay, so this is by Martin Franzman, who's a Lutheran theologian. He was a pastor, and uh, he was a professor at a seminary in St. Louis. Okay? He was called to be a professor there in 1946. And um, he became then the chair of the Department of Exegetical Theology in 1957. So here's what exegetical theology is, if you don't know. Uh, exegesis, exegetical theology, is the theology that, oh, actually, I can just do it here, that looks at the text and says, what does this text mean? And says, hey, listen, what does this translation mean? How about if we translate it this way? Where does this tie into theology in the scriptures elsewhere? Um, and just examines the text and breaks it apart and see, see, examines what's going on there. That's exegetics, exegetical theology. Uh, and obviously the ultimate goal of exegesis on the text is so that it can be preached. And all theology has to be practical theology. If it isn't, it serves no purpose. It's like upper academics. At, no, this is a better example. It's like a, a philosophy degree, right? What's the joke about a philosophy degree? Well, why are you getting a philosophy degree? So that I can go and teach philosophy. Why do you want to teach philosophy? So that I can get people who are going to have majors in philosophy so they can come and teach philosophy. So that they can raise more people with majors in philosophy so they can come and teach philosophy. And it just becomes this weird academic, upper academic cycle where you're not actually doing anything practical. You're just perpetuating the generation of weird philosophical ethereal discussion, but it serves no purpose. Okay, so uh, theology can't be that way. You can't have a bunch of upper academics sitting up there going, well, I wonder, just for the sake of wondering, how many angels could dance on the head of a pin? Hmm, how many angels could fit there? I don't know. Let's discuss it. If a tree falls down in the wilderness and nobody is there to hear it, does God cause it? You know, <laughs> All right, come on, why bother? You know, so theology is inherently practical because theology really is about delivering Christ. Um, so that exegetical theology really serves uh, to inform preaching 
And if you ever spend a week with me, you'll find that actually writing sermons is a lot of exegesis. It's not just sitting down and saying, well, I don't know, what would be a fun thing to write about today? You have to actually look through the text and study and read a lot and, and uh, find out where connections are and make your points that way. See what the church says. Now, I say all of this because, especially in the case of Franzmen, with theology being inherently practical, with exegetical theology especially being inherently practical, informing preaching, it means that folks like Martin Franzmen, who are very intelligent and good theologians, also are typically pretty good preachers and pretty good hymn writers. Because all of this exegesis on the text then informs how you look at theology and deliver it to your people. And if you ever want to borrow it, I actually have this book called Ha Ha Among the Trumpets. I had to hunt really hard to find the hardcover version of it too. It's hard to find. So I'm really proud of that. Uh, but if you ever want to borrow it and read some of Martin Franzman's sermons, um, you're welcome to. Very, very smart fellow. Um, now he had sort of a reputation at the St. Louis Seminary uh, because he was very much against the idea of historical criticism, which is the idea of looking at scripture and deciding what could or could not have happened or saying, well, Jesus couldn't perform miracles in real life, so it's probably just stories that they're telling to give you a moral or to make you understand that Jesus is somebody you should probably love, but they didn't really happen, obviously. Or saying Moses <laughs> obviously didn't write the Pentateuch, obviously. Somebody else wrote the, those, and they just say that it's, and it, you know, it's kind of cute of you to say that Moses wrote them, and, and we won't correct you, but he, he didn't really. Hey, that's historical criticism, and that's one of the really big things that caused the, the walkout and then the following crisis uh, uh, at the St. Louis Seminary, and then the birth of Seminex and, and all of that. So some of you here are contemporaries with, with that and actually probably know more about it even than I do, just from being around. Um, but Franzman was very much opposed to that idea. You know, the ultimate question is this, does scripture say and mean what scripture says and means? And if your answer is yes, then thanks be to God. And if your answer is no, then come have a talk with me, okay? Um, so he was very opposed to that. And then uh, he actually left the seminary in 1969 and uh, moved to England where he taught at Westfield House, which is a, it's a seminary, I believe. I believe it's a seminary for the Lutheran Church of England. And that's in Cambridge. So actually the seminary in Fort Wayne has an exchange program uh, with Westfield House in Cambridge, and then also with Oberussel in Germany, the, that other Lutheran seminary there. So they will send people to, to us for one year, and we will send people to England or to Germany for a year to study at those seminaries uh, as well. Um, so he taught there, and then he, he actually died in England. He did not move back to the United States. He loved hymnody. He wrote a lot of hymns. There's actually a, a whole book full of his original hymns and his translation of some of the old German and Latin hymns. Uh, and that was written by a guy named Robin Lever, who, if you're into liturgy and 
music, hymnody, stuff like that. Robin Lever's a really big name because he's a really big liturgical and and hymnody scholar. I have a book that he wrote called the, or about the, um, the manuscripts that Bach used, the manuscripts of Bach's Bible uh, that he used to compose his cantatas where he wrote his notes in the Bible and there's photocopies of the actual pages of Bach's Bible that you could look at. It's, a, it's really neat. And uh, he was on the seminary campus and I had him sign the book. So, I mean, I don't want to brag or anything, but uh, <laughs> Robin Lever is a very, uh, very smart man and he was good friends with Franzman and, and put together a whole book just of Franzman's hymnody, which I do not own uh, because it's been out of print for a very long time and is extremely difficult to find. But if you have one, I'd love to see it. Okay. Um, I was going to read to you a little bit. We'll see if I still have time for that. Here's the thing about Franzman's hymnody, and there's quite a bit of it actually in the LSB. It's different. Franzman's hymnody is different. If you just look at the text of it, it's very rich, it's very deep, it's very meaningful, it's very kind of deep and dark poetic. Just beautiful. It, you don't look at that and uh, some of the, even the old Lutheran or German hymns and say, yeah, this is definitely, they're cut from the same cloth. They're not. His hymns are very modern, but in the best of possible ways that you can take that statement. And you'll see it in a second. Um, one of, probably his most well-known hymn is not actually this one. It's Thy Strong Word, which you probably know. That is a Franzman hymn. So if you, if you know the text of that hymn, you can already understand what I mean when I say his hymns are different. Um, very deep. Um, so then let's, let's talk about the hymn text just briefly. This was composed in 1967. Um, it was composed, or the, the text was written uh, as a celebratory hymn in honor of the 450th celebration of the Reformation. Uh, so having that understanding, you see a whole nother level to the meaning of the text. Part of the thing, one of the things he did with the text was look at the trials and tribulations that face the church and the faith now and during the time of the Reformation uh, because his goal was to tie the modern church to the church of the Reformation so that you can see you still are the church of the Reformation and you still struggle with all the same things they did but you still have the same hope which is always Christ. Uh, So the structure of the hymn is interesting because the first half of every stanza begins with a, a problem and then the solution to the problem is addressed in the second half of every stanza in a theological statement about the Lord um, and his nature. So it's really, really genius. Now the tune. This is one of the hymns that people would say is a difficult tune to sing, uh, which is one reason why we're having it as the hymn of the month, so that it becomes not difficult. I will admit, even as a musician, it is not one of the easier ones in the book. But I have all the confidence in the world in you, my people, and you're going to do a great job. (laughs) Hey, this tune was written by a fellow named Jan Bender. If you know anything about music in the Lutheran church in the 20th century, or uh, if you are a musician yourself, you know the name Jan Bender. 
He, he's written quite a few tunes or settings that are in this hymnal, but if you go on CPH and search for Jan Bender, you find a whole bunch of his organ works. He was an organist. Uh, he, he was born in Holland, but then he moved to Germany and, and lived there. And he was a cantor and a, and a music teacher and a composer. Uh, this is what I thought was interesting. He actually was drafted into the German army twice during World War II. He lost an eye uh, when he, on his first tour uh, because some shrapnel hit him and he lost his left eye. And then in his second tour, uh, he was captured by Allied forces. And he surrendered to Allied forces and was uh, put in a POW camp. And then moved to America and became a music teacher for the Lutheran Church in America. <laughs> He, he taught at the Teachers College. Let's see how many of you remember which college that is. Concordia Teachers College in Seward, Nebraska. He was the music teacher there. Taught organ and composition and music there. And then from there he moved actually to Ohio, uh, of all places, where he taught at Wittenberg University. And that was the last place that, that he taught. And in fact, if you look down, so you know how this works in the hymnal, hymn number is 834. I always get confused and think that it's 843, and then I open up my hymnal and say, ah, uh, this is not right. 834, so if you look down there at the bottom right-hand corner, it tells you what the name of the tune is, and the name of this tune is Wittenberg New, which was named after Wittenberg University, where he was teaching. So this tune is by Jan Bender. Now, as with many hymns in the LSB, there are, it's not written in four-part harmony in the pew book. Uh, so if you're somebody who likes to sing in four-part harmony, you just have to listen to the organ and pick it up there. The reason for that is because the tune is so new, they don't want to just, the people who put together this book didn't want to distract you by having more than just the melody. Sort of like what we do in this Bible class. Uh, so, as a quick tangent, in this book, and this is a Reformation sermon too, which is, this is so great, because it all ties together. This is his Reformation sermon, and I don't know what year, all it says is Reformation. But the title of the sermon is this, Theology Must Sing. Uh, and I tried to find a copy of this online that I could print off for you to take home with you, but I couldn't find one, and I didn't have time to photocopy this book. Uh, so, yeah, again, if you want to borrow this, let me know. I'll check it out to you. But I have just a few passages I want to read to you from this sermon. It's so great. A and this is, by the way, why hymnody is so important in the church. You don't skimp in the liturgy. You don't skimp on, uh, you know, the vestments of the church. You don't skimp on the reverence. You don't skimp on beautifying the sanctuary. You make it as beautiful and as reverent as possibly can. And you don't skimp on the hymnody or the music. All of this stuff matters. Everything matters. Theology is doxology. Theology must sing. The church with psalms must shout. No door can keep them out. <laughs> Isn't that great? Oh, man, I love it. Listen to this. So each generation of the church must try and test itself anew to see whether its song is true, to see whether its doxology is theology. St. Paul tells us that we are to teach and admonish one another with spiritual songs. 
And then he, he talks about how we define spiritual and all of that. It's really great. Uh, and then there was another passage. Yes, 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 yes. The amazing thing is how eloquent men can grow in defense of the shoddy ersatz hymnody, bad hymns. They begin by criticizing the good hymns as hard to sing. One might ask in return, why must a hymn be easy? Who has ever said that it should be easy? Look at that woodcut of Albrecht Dürer's where he depicts the scene from the apocalypse in which those that came from the great tribulation who have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb sing their heavenly song. Look at those faces, their intensity of concentration, faces almost contorted with the energy of their devotion. If you would really know what singing with grace in your hearts uh, to be, this is what the Lord really means. Beautiful. Beautiful. And I like that. Why must a hymn be, why does it have to be easy? Just do it and it'll become easy to you. Don't be afraid of it. It's like what uh, President Harrison wrote um, about singing hymnody at, at one of his churches. He, uh, he was brand new there. No, excuse me. He wasn't. He was gone and he had a substitute teacher or substitute pastor. Oops. Substitute pastor come in and uh, this little boy ran up to the substitute and said, Well, pastor... A lot of people think that Isaiah Mighty Seer in days of old is a hard hymn, but it ain't. And then he ran away. <laughs> By the way, that's going to be the hymn of the month for next month, Isaiah Mighty Seer. So you'll see, it's not hard, it's easy. Okay, this is the other thing. Um, let's see. Rather, let the word of Christ dwell in us richly, and then we shall inevitably find, sing, and produce the best in song. We must produce. The song of the church must be an unending song. The church must cherish the best, but its song should not be a mere repetition of the song in the past. Then shall we sing with grace, with all the emphasis on God and a most unsentimental subordination of ourselves. We shall sing to the Lord. With our song, we shall guide one another continually to the center and fountain of the Christian's life and thus really teach and admonish one another. We shall sing in our hearts. The whole man will sing. We shall then see the realized ideal of all Christian song. The whole man with all his powers, with all the skills and gifts that God has bestowed upon him, wholly bent on giving utterance to the peace that rules within him, wholly given to the purpose of letting the word of Christ that dwells in him richly become articulate and audible through him to the upbuilding of the church and the glory of God. Then shall our theology be doxology. So yes, if you'd like to borrow this, let me know. Okay? I just wanted to read that to you so you understand where I come from and why I talk about hymnody being so important, but also so that you get a sense of Martin Franzman as a theologian and who he is when we now turn to look at the text of his hymn. O God, O Lord of heaven and earth, thy living finger never wrote that life should be an aimless moat, a deathward drift from futile birth. Thy word meant life triumphant, hurled in splendor through thy broken world. Since light awoke and life began, 
thou hast desired thy life for man. Woof! Do you see what I mean about this text? This is, this is some heavy-hitting hymnody right here. <laughs> this is almost the kind of hymnody that you have to slow way down and just take a second to digest. It's so dense and rich. There's so much here. Thy living finger never wrote that life should be an aimless moat, a deathward drift from a futile birth. Never was the intent of God that man turn away from him, that man refuse to love him, that man refuse his gifts, that man refuse life and choose instead death and choose instead to live a life that is completely futile, born so that you can die, nothing more. Never has that ever been the intent. Since light awoke and life began, thou hast desired thy life for man. I, it's so beautiful, but here's why. Because it's not about you have desired life for man. There's, it's possessive. You have desired, thou hast desired thy life for man. It's not enough that you should live. That's not enough for God. He desires not that you should just live, merely live, merely have a beating heart that pumps blood into a functioning brain and functioning muscles. It's not enough. His desire is that you live his life, that what is his will become yours, that all of the grace and blessings that he has would be yours. As you'll hear in the sermon today, the desire of the Lord is that his kingdom be given away. He's not like the, the Greek gods of Mount Olympus. He doesn't care about ruling from the throne. He cares about giving his throne away. I don't care about my territory as long as it's being given away to my people. That's what he says. I'm going to skip here uh, to stanza three because one and three will be the ones for the rest of this month we sing. And I love, this is, I think, the best of all the stanzas. Thou camest to our hall of death, O Christ, to breathe our poisoned air, to drink for us the dark despair that strangled our reluctant breath. How beautiful the feet that trod, the road that leads us back to God. How beautiful the feet that ran to bring the great good news to man. Whoa! That is so good, so good. To breathe our poisoned air, oh, and we're not talking about San Francisco. <laughs> we're talking about that great, pure, humid, northwest corn, Missouri air. And even that's poison to you because every fiber of creation is infected. Even the air you breathe is sinful air. Did you ever think about that? You use your sinful mind to think about sinful things as you walk through a sinful creation with a sinful body, using sinful lungs to inhale sinful air, and using a heart that is sinful to pump sinful blood through your sinful veins. Oof. I should have warned you that today was a fire and brimstone day, huh? <laughs> uh, but that's, I mean, that's, all of that is included right here. You, the, 
We are in this hall of death. And actually, uh, let's see. Yeah, in stanza two, who's the one who put us into this house of death? We did. We housed us in this hall of death. And now thou camest to our hall of death. We didn't go to him. He came to us. To do what? To breathe in all of that poisoned air. To suck it up like some kind of theological air filter. So that the air you breathe is a redeemed air as those who are in Christ. Because the Lord has taken into himself, into his very flesh, all of the sin. To drink the cup of despair, the cup of wrath from the Father that you were destined to drink but never could accomplish. He has done it. How beautiful then are those feet that carry the word of that gospel. The be that, those beautiful nail-pierced feet that show up, that phase through the door of that upper room, that walk upon the sands and sit a body down to cook fish. Those beautiful feet that stood upon the mountain and ascended into heaven. How beautiful those feet are, for they preach the gospel. And I, this is one last thing that I want to say. The, the fourth stanza is a doxological stanza. It talks about the, the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. So I will commend that to you. But here in the second stanza, what is this house of death? Well, right here, a place where death had royal scope and room. A place where the devil really is prince and ruler, where death wins. And I love this language because it points to something really great. Until thy servant, prince of peace, of course, who is prince of peace? The servant of the Lord. Jesus. Yeah, okay. That was the Sunday school answer, folks. <laughs> Don't scare me like that. Okay, until thy servant, prince of peace, of course, Christ, breached its walls for our release. Ah, that's such, it's so vivid, do you see? It's so just, it's sharp and vivid. Every single sentence is like being hit with a perfectly formed brick right in the face. Oh, wow, that was kind of nice, you know? Uh, here, it breached the walls. This is what people get wrong, too, about what Christ says, his promise about the church. The gates of hell will not prevail against her. Did you ever stop and think about how that's actually kind of a weird thing to say? Shouldn't it be that the gates of the church will never be breached by hell? Did you ever think about that? The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. What does that mean? It means that something is attacking the gates of hell, not the other way around. And this is what it points to breached the walls. The gates of hell can't contain the people of God because Christ comes in and kicks open the door, breaches the walls, and pulls his people out. You're not housed in that house of death anymore. You built the wall up all around yourself so you couldn't get out and no one could get in, you thought. But Christ comes and breaches the wall. He pounds through like the Kool-Aid man. If, I don't, if I'm not being too sacrilegious, just crashes right on through with reckless abandon. Because that's how God is. He's kind of reckless. Because love makes him crazy. Crazy about you. Unreasonable and reckless. He crashes through the walls. He breaches the walls of hell to pull his people out of damnation. Drinking the cup of wrath and breathing the poisoned air. That smog that sin gave for you to breathe. It's not good enough. 
It's not good enough that you should live in a body and do nothing but walk around on a sinful earth breathing sinful air. It's not good enough. It's not good enough until you live his life that he gives to you freely. That's this hymn. Now, here's how we'll do this. Because there's only two stanzas, I'll sing you the melody one time. Then I will sing the first stanza so you can hear the melody a second time. Then we'll sing stanzas three and four together. And then we'll be done. Okay, let's get our, whoops, that's not the right number. Did it again, okay. Here's the tune. Da 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 Okay, and here's stanza one. O God, O Lord of heaven and earth, Thy living finger never wrote that death should be a nameless moat. Our death were drift from futile birth. Thy word meant life triumphant hurled in splendor through thy broken world since light awoke and life began thou hast desired thy life for man three and four together thou camest to our hall of death O Christ, to breathe our poison dare, to drink for us the dark despair that strangled our reluctant breath. How beautiful the feet that trod, the road that leads us back to God. How beautiful the feet that ran to bring the great good news to man. O Spirit, who didst once restore Thy church that it might be again the bringer of good news to men. Breathe on thy cloven church once more that in these gray and latter days there may be those whose life is praise each life a high doxology 
to Father's Son, and unto Thee. I'll see you at the high altar.